ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It's just occurred to me, um, that theme is, of course, in 4-4 for the musicians playing at home. Just before we got on air, Scott and I were listening to some stuff we we'll, might might become relevant at a later date that was incredibly complex. And now listening to that, it just sounds well, quite simple. I wonder if that's a metaphor for what we do here at the minefield. We take things that should be discussed in a virtuosic way and just reduce it to the kind of pap you get in media. <laughs> anyway, welcome to it. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Well, Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Wow. Too harsh, Scott? Oh, I mean, I kind of hope so. I always thought one of the ambitions of the show, and in fact, one of the things we used to play around with was part of our ambition was to take the familiar and make it strange. I, I think to some extent we still succeed often in doing that. But does this mean we need a new theme song that's in, I don't know, 1116 or something? <laughs> that's good. Oh, anyway, wonderful. This is more time signature chat than I expected. I know. I'm just, I'm dying to launch into what it is that we were listening to. But, no, no, uh, no, no, you're right. It. I know, I know, I know. It's going to have to be later. But if we do do it, mm. it could be one for the ages. Uh, I think it could be great. Mm. Yeah. So something anyway. far less complicated today. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Well, that's actually a joke because it's unbelievably <laughs> oh, right. I see. complicated. Um, I've been feeling for quite some time, Waleed, that one of the great challenges, one of the real confrontations that we are anticipating in coming years is the extent to which one set of urgencies, namely those surrounding climate change, run headlong into another set of, I would say, no less serious, somewhat more proximate, but impossible to simply dismiss considerations and problems surrounding democracy, democratic consent, even things like like just transition, so that those who are most exposed, say, to having to pay more for certain basic goods and services from petrol to energy to fresh foods, uh, and yet are least able to afford them, they have some kind of respite, something that helps them make that transition from the unsustainable way that we have been living to a more sustainable, but admittedly more, at least temporarily or in the short term, more expensive way of, of living. That concern, how climate change and democracy or how climate change in certain forms of equity and fairness, the way that those two things are going to have to be Reconcile to one another, or at least the sharp, the hard edges can be ameliorated, softened. That really began to bite for me in 2018 when we were witnessing the Gilets Jaunes protests in France, which were really complicated protests. They weren't just about the French government's imposition of a fuel excise on uh, particularly diesel vehicles and the drivers thereof. Those protests ended up being a kind of proxy, a placeholder for a huge series of grievances. Uh, Some of them were kind of racist and anti-cosmopolitan in nature. Uh, Some of them were just kind of, as Pierre-Rosa Vallon described them at the time, kind of counter-democratic forms of resentment, just really being sick of a heavy-handed government. Um, And some of them were pretty solidly classist. The idea that those who are least able to afford to pay for taxes that were meant to dissuade the users of heavy vehicles from using those vehicles. Um, Everything got bound together in this kind of really explosive series of public protests that ended up having that particular tax rescinded. But it was interesting to me. It was interesting because I think that grievance, even if a whole lot of other grievances glommed onto it, I think the initial grievance, why should we be made to pay more for an agenda that is being imposed upon us from the outside, namely the EU, uh, in the interests of climate change that will affect further generations and in no way will affect our families, will affect our livelihoods. I'm not sure that that form of protest was unjustifiable. 
um, and that the resentment that motivated it was unjustifiable. Would you say the same? Sorry, I don't mean to. No, please. Would you say the same of a lot of the, let's say, objection rather than protest that we saw in Australia over climate policy? I think it depends. Mm-hmm. There were certain bad faith arguments against, say, carbon taxes that really were, I believe, mounted in bad faith. But then there were mm-hmm. other forms of demonstration from, say, mining communities that it's very, very hard to look at them with disdain or contempt and to say you have no right to object to your social life, your conditions of livelihood being upended in the interests of staving off some future threat or upholding the well-being of future generations. Yeah, especially in towns that are built on mining, yeah. where there are, you know, monuments and statues erected to it and where that is the lifeblood of those communities. Mm, exactly right. Yeah. But it's funny that it's never really how it played out. I mean, you'd be familiar with this because I've said it to you before and I've probably written it, but I feel one of the problems with the climate wars in Australia was that it ultimately boiled down to those who had the least to lose Mm. from climate action, objecting to and yelling at those who had the most to lose for their reluctance to embrace it. Mm. I'm, I'm not factoring the politicians to this. I'm just talking about the people who may have felt one way or another. There was a clear, it seems to me clear, geographic but also wealth divide. Mm, That's right. On the issue. And it's not just that some people had wealth and therefore could absorb extra costs. It was that they tended to work in jobs, perhaps in the knowledge economy, that wouldn't be affected by climate action. And so it was quite easy for them to say, that climate action was what mattered and we should embrace it at more or less any cost because it wasn't a cost that they were paying. Now, that doesn't mean... The fact that something's an easy thing for you to say doesn't mean that it's wrong. Mm, (laughs) No, that's right. It can be that something's easy for you to say and correct, but I think there was insufficient attention paid to that dimension of it. And I just wonder if you see the same thing in the Jean protests or you think they're conceptually different somehow? I don't see them as conceptually different. I mean, there were a whole lot of ideologically loaded things, like I said, that glommed onto the protest that had nothing at all to do with climate change, had nothing at all to do with a fuel excise, and had everything to do with a kind of anti-cosmopolitan, and to some extent, I mean, very seriously, kind of a counter-democratic movement. I, I'm not sure I've ever told you, Willie, just to pivot back to what you just said. There is a very famous Marxist literary critic, I'm not going to name him, who once scandalously said that it was only once he had achieved tenure that he had enough money to be a Marxist. Mm. There's a, there are certain affordances that an ethically sustainable life requires. I, I've always thought that one of the most obscene things about the way we live at the moment is that the worst food is the cheapest. The most freshly available and nutritious and sustaining food is invariably the most expensive um, there's something about that that I think that, that offends the sensibilities and ought to offend anybody who cares seriously about the conditions of our common life. It makes me want to interrogate the meaning of the term ethical, though, in that phrase, because if, if ethical behavior is only realizable at a certain level of wealth, mm. is it worthy mm. of the name ethical? You're exactly right. You're exactly yeah. right. Anyway, we've strayed. Well, we've kind of strayed. So there are ways in which this particular tension that we've been talking about between democratic equality, fairness, justice on the one hand versus the demands. And I don't think anything we've said minimizes in any way the seriousness of the demands that are posed by climate change. But that tension also manifests itself in far less public, far more quotidian ways. So again, one of the ways we've seen it manifest itself is in solar power, people who can afford to have solar panels, especially newer and more efficient ones, generally pay lower energy bills and are able to then feed the power that they generate back into the grid and achieve quite, in some respects, quite remarkable rebates. Only after a capital outlay. That's That's right. significant. That's right. And those who cannot afford solar panels typically pay much higher energy bills. And those higher bills, again, go towards the construction 
of the energy infrastructure that is needed to benefit the Commonwealth, the whole, the community. There's something patently, I think, unjust in that, that those who are least able to afford it are having to pay more. Those who potentially, purportedly are able to afford good, efficient, high-yield solar panels are then able to pay less. There's something about that. There's something about that you can feel. There's a seedbed there of resentment. And I, was the same true of the carbon tax then? Because that was the argument against it, It right? was the argument. Was that it would impose costs right across the economy, mm-hmm. and those who could least afford to bear them would be hit the hardest by them, just by virtue of the fact that any additional cost that goes across the economy is going to hit the least wealthy harder. Mm. Uh, that, so that it was regressive in that sense. Yes, that, that, that's right. And then what went alongside that were subsidies that would ameliorate those initial effects in the hopes... And tax cuts. As and well. tax cuts. That's yeah. exactly right. So the reason we're bringing all this up is because this has now really seemed to bite around the issue of electric vehicles, which we have never discussed on this show, Willie, mm. which I think is kind of interesting. Um, anybody who's been kind of following politics, especially over the last week, will know that with COP28 happening in Dubai at the moment, with the government being due to prepare and present its annual climate change statement. This is that time of the year when some kind of reckoning takes place about whether or not Australia is on track or not on track to meet its 2030 um, emissions reductions targets. There's a degree of pessimism as to whether the government is in fact on track to do that, to meet those targets. There's further pessimism that even if it does meet those targets, those targets are substantially less than those being set by other nations. So is there really a virtue in meeting those targets in the first place? I think those considerations can probably be left to the side. What is interesting to me is that the federal government has pitched, it's hung its capacity to meet those targets as they currently stand. Uh, which is a 42% reduction of Australia's carbon emissions from 2005 levels by 2030. The government has hung its ability to meet those targets on two big strategies, two big schemes. One is the capacity investment scheme, uh, which essentially is a series of subsidies, incentives, guarantees that are being offered to private investors that would see Australia's capacity to meet 82% of its energy production by renewable means by 2030. Um, Again, subsidies, investments, incentives, and a kind of underwriting of any risk borne by private investors. The other scheme is the National Electric Vehicle Strategy, which again is a series of investments, incentives, subsidies, trying to entice more and more Australian car buyers to purchase electric vehicles and to reduce, as the government puts it, reduce the barrier to purchasing those vehicles. So some of that has to do with affordability. Some of it has to do with the availability of of charging stations. Some of it has to do with production as it already stands. There aren't enough electric vehicles to meet demand as they are. And even if that demand were entirely being met, there's nowhere near enough demand uh, that would see the requisite number of electric vehicles on the road in Australia by 2030. So there's already a kind of subsidy incentive structure that's built into it. It's already a tall ask. Um, I'm not sure if you remember, Willie, Scott Morrison's claims that what Labour then in opposition is trying to do with its electric vehicle strategy is to take away the Great Australian Weekend. Yeah, to kill the weekend. To kill the weekend. Um, So this is already a difficult equation. It's made more difficult, though, when state governments would seem to impose a kind of disincentive on the purchase, the demand for electric vehicles. But that's what the Victorian state government did back in 2021, when it levied what was essentially a road user tax. Um, Usually road user taxes are imposed on drivers of heavy vehicles. The idea being that heavy vehicles, greater wear and tear on the road, uh, they ought to then pay for that greater wear and tear on the road. In certain industries, there's a certain rebate that then comes back. Uh, But in the first instance, the road user tax is meant to, it's not so much a disincentive 
or a dissuasion from these heavy vehicles, but rather recognition of the disproportionate damage they do to shared infrastructure. Um, what the Victorian government essentially did, because drivers of electric vehicles are exempt from the fuel excise that all Australians pay whenever they put petrol in their cars. Yes, because they don't use petrol. Because they don't use petrol. To inflict a separate form of payment that's usually uh, reserved for heavy vehicles for electric vehicles. Now, to cut a long story short, it was immediately controversial. Some saw it as uh, either regressive or unfair. Some rightly saw it as a disincentive on behavior that we want people otherwise to take up, namely purchasing electric vehicles. It was overturned then by the High Court in October of this year, but not on grounds really of fairness, not really on the grounds of the disincentivizing effect, but simply on constitutional grounds that state governments do not have the constitutional power to charge excises. That's mm. purely the purview of the federal government. Yep. So that was the ruling, which has its own implications, by the way. What I mean, are they? Well, in terms of road user charges or road user taxes, I mean, one of the things that has been flagged for the better part of the last seven years is that state governments should increasingly be disincentivizing the use of private vehicles on roads, uh, should be incentivizing the use of public transport, uh, not just as a way of minimizing congestion, uh, preserving certain degree of time otherwise spent in traffic, but also, of course, reducing carbon emissions. And if state governments don't have the ability to do that, that could they pose could. They can have the ability to do it. They just can't do it via an excise. Yes. Maybe it would then be something that the Commonwealth government used, and then states put an additional amount on top of that. Or, or it's just a different mechanism. Or it's a different mechanism. But the real issue is, the real issue that we want to discuss is the issues of fairness that were thrown up by the very decision to remove that tax or remove that road user charge on drivers of electric vehicles. Because what we're effectively saying then is that those who are able to pay for proportionally more expensive vehicles, which electric vehicles are, are then having, having to pay less for the use of common roads. And those who are least able to afford the upkeep of those roads, the upkeep of common infrastructure through the payment of fuel excises, uh, those who are least able to afford them and therefore have to resort to fuel-powered vehicles, are effectively subsidizing buyers and users of electric vehicles. Yeah, this... I'm not sure. I'm not quite sure about that argument. Okay. It's kind of got an obvious intuitive appeal, and maybe in the end that should prevail. But the thing I think it factors out a little bit is the thing that it assumes at the very start, which is that electric vehicles cost more. So one the, of the ways you could rationalise Therefore, this, what it is that's being paid over time is being borne right up front instead of so spread. That, yeah, yeah, so the end cost is probably similar. That's right, Depends which is also the argument for solar, by the way. Yes, right. But the end cost is broadly similar. It's just spent in a different way. Meanwhile, we should be incentivising those who can afford the upfront payment to make it. So, so it's not that in the end they get a... It's not a subsidy, actually. It's the opposite. Right? That's right. That's They're just being left alone. Yes. Right. So it's not that they get a break of some sort. It's just that the distribution of spending over time is different. And so I, I don't know in the end that the equity argument quite works out fully. I think it would work out fully if the cars cost the same. Mm-hmm. No, but then it would disappear, right? Because everyone would have equal access to, That's exactly right. to the car. Yeah. Or it might work out if you could demonstrate that electric vehicles last and are likely to be used for such a length of time that in the long run, it will cost people less. So I could follow that. You'd have to factor in petrol prices to that. I mean, who knows? That's, mm. that's another factor. That's right. So I guess what I would say is there's an equity argument there. There's the outline of one. I don't know that it's a slam dunk. I think it, it depends a little bit on how the maths plays out in that. I, I actually wonder if the stronger argument against it might be a, a deontological one. Mm, excellent. Which is to say, well, what if everyone accessed electric vehicles? 
Well, then what would happen is no one would be paying any road tax and therefore all the disrepair that occurs to the roads through people using those roads is unaccounted for. It's just not paid for. It has to be covered in some other way and that that might be unfair. Now, the response to my deontological argument would probably be something like, well, at that point, you just reinstitute the tax because there's no equity issue and there's also no incentive issue because what are you incentivizing if everybody has electric vehicles? And, you know, that might be a, a fair enough response to it. But I personally, um, open to be convinced otherwise, by the way, but I personally find that a more interesting or convincing way of trying to argue this out. The other factor that we haven't brought into this, which is actually, I think, a really, really important one is, right now, do we want to be incentivizing electric vehicles anyway given the reports that have come out of the automotive industry that are showing that as it currently stands, over the life of the creation and then use of electric and conventional cars, the emissions of electric cars probably is higher at the moment because of the manufacturing. Mm. And that's to do with the lithium battery, I that's think, right. that is in them and so on and so on. Now, that might change over time. This becomes, a, you know, one of those arguments that unfolds in the classical way. Well, you know, if you create the incentive, then you have the incentive to invest in the technology, which will over time mean that it's less carbon intensive to produce these vehicles, which in the long run means emissions come down. But right, And that, that might be true. But right now, as, as we sit here, it is far from clear that increasing the demand for electric vehicles is an environmental good. It is clear that given the existence of a particular electric vehicle that is a better environmental choice than one that uses petrol, but that artificially cleaves off the supply, demand and production process of electric vehicles. So all of these things become, like even the more straightforward claims in this issue become complicated and contested. You would think the idea that incentivizing electric vehicles is a good environmental thing to do would be a straightforward claim. It turns out it's not. That's why I find this a tricky thing is every claim is in some way mitigated. It's in some way diminished by some other factor that has to be admitted into the analysis. Which is why in the long run, I think probably the most defensible position to take is that there ought to be some kind of disincentive on the use of private motor vehicles regardless. That there ought to be incentives towards public transport and there ought to be incentives towards state governments. I mean, the rate at which Australians use private vehicles in cities like Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, that are sort of 68% plus of the amount of travel is by private motor vehicle with less than two passengers. I mean, it's an astoundingly high rate. It's out of proportion to virtually anywhere else in the world. So there ought to be those incentives towards public transport. And the only way then of achieving those incentives towards public transport would be imposing something like a road user tax on all users of private motor vehicles, in which case, if there are still petrol-powered cars on the roads, then there, then there becomes that double tax, that double imposition. But that only magnifies your equity argument. Yeah, that's precisely what, what I'm saying. So at some point, at some point, if these mitigating investments are to take effect, then the penalties are going to become harsh and increasingly harsh. And those who are least able to afford them are going to bear them disproportionately. And that's unavoidable because even in your suggestion of somehow incentivizing public transport... Well, all that will mean is that those who can afford That's right. to maintain their private vehicle use will have the run of the road, literally. Yes. They will, all the convenience will be theirs, the parking spaces will be more open to them and so on and so forth. Because we don't, if we're honest, except in particular cases and particular areas within these cities, have public transport systems that do the job. Mm. Like there are so many places, I just think of the city I live, there are so many places where if you relied on public transport, you couldn't really mm, that's right. achieve anything. Like getting to work would be an enormous task. You'd be forfeiting hours and hours of your day every mm. day to try to do that. We don't, we don't live in a, a London or a, mm. a New York or Moscow, I understand, is similar. Never been to Moscow, but you get the picture. 
So, so it wouldn't just be incentivising, it would have to be a radical overhaul of the whole public transport system in the first place. And between now and then, it seems to me that one of the issues that we have to attend to very, very carefully, because I care about the democratic conditions of our common life and because I care about the conditions of our common home, which is a just poetic way of talking about the environment in which we live and breathe, um, I've long been convinced by Jedediah Purdy's argument that the politics that we carry with us into a climate crisis will only be intensified, exacerbated by that climate crisis. Mm. And if the politics that prevails as we enter a crisis is one that is relatively unconcerned with questions of equity, relatively blithe when it comes to the possibilities of the creation of resentment in the hearts of those who simply cannot afford to engage in the forms of technology that we are supposed to engage in if we purport to care about the planet, and then are treated with a degree of moral disdain for not doing so. If that's the politics that we carry into the climate crisis, then that's the kind of politics that is only ever going to be exacerbated and intensified to all of our diminishment. So it seems to me that as we kind of transition from one stage to this next, hopefully more sustainable, more ethically justifiable stage, it seems to me that the question of resentment, the fear of lived inequity, and the consciousness that not only is that inequity being experienced, but also the extra dimension of moral disdain as the result of that inequity, that it seems to me is something we're going to have to attend very, very carefully to. And I don't think the interests of the climate are served badly by attending to those further considerations. Because mm-hmm. it's a mutual moral disdain. Exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, let's bring in a guest, shall we? Our guest is Cressida Gawkroger. She's a policy advisor and philosopher. She also happens to moonlight as a children's book author. And she's a moderator at the Kronlana Center for Ethical Leadership. And I should say, she's written a fabulously provocative piece on taxation, fairness, and electric vehicles incentives for ABC Religion Ethics. Cressida, thanks so much for joining us once again on The Minefield. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. Um, Really interesting listening to your discussion because I think that there's an... Well, let's say that there are a couple of things that came up for me. So one of them is, Waleed, you were saying that maybe it's not an equity issue, the balance between electric vehicles and uh, fossil fuel-powered vehicles because electric vehicles end up potentially being cheaper over the long run. But I think... Although they may not, depending on the length of the... Exactly. Um, But I think that there's another assumption that is made in the arguments that you presented, Scott, which I also think is a flawed assumption. Mm. And that's the assumption that the fuel excise pays for roads. Mm. So if you actually look through kind of government documents about this, uh, the fuel excise uh, used to pay for roads. And then that ended more than three decades ago. So they just call it a general revenue tax. And actually only about 30% of the money that's generated from the fuel excise is spent on paying for roads. So there's something a little bit disingenuous about the argument that because the fuel excise pays for roads, that electric vehicles are somehow using the roads for free where these other cars are subsidising them. And so... To kind of expand on your point about maybe the most equitable approach being that all cars uh, end up paying for the roads in some way where road usage is linked to the amount of tax that they pay, you might think, look, having a new tax that pays for roads would be different to the function of actually having fuel excise, which just seems to be, in, in some respects, a way of raising revenue. But in another respect, There's an ethical justification for having that fuel excise, which isn't related to road usage. It's related not even just to kind of carbon emissions and impact on the environment, but also on health. That there are lots of issues with air pollution that we know affect public health, and they also affect other things like, you know, people's ability to work and uh, children's performance in schools and things. So in one way... It looks like if this was a debate over whether or not people who use the roads should pay for the roads, then there might be a fairness issue. But it actually feels like maybe there's something that's been missed because actually these taxes aren't being used for paying for the roads in the way that they're being presented. But what if the electric vehicles road user tax, I I don't know what we're calling it. Let's just go with that. What if that was treated in the same way as the excise? So... It may not be earmarked to be spent on roads. It goes into general revenue, albeit probably a different government because of state. If they got away with 
levying it, which they haven't, but if they had, it would have gone to state coffers, etc. I mean, if it was treated in the same way, then you're still comparing apples and apples, aren't you? And you still have a situation where governments are going to have to spend money on roads to some degree. And we know that they do. We can have an argument about whether it's enough or too much, but they do. And so whether it's dedicated funding or just part of the pie and you still get that money spent, you're still in a like-for-like situation. Couldn't the equity argument run in those circumstances? I mean, I think once you separate the argument that electric vehicles should be making up for the fact that fossil fuel-powered vehicles do something uh, and that kind of subsidising electric vehicles, then you can have an independent discussion about whether or not there's a value in finding new sources of tax revenue, and one of those might be through electric vehicles. And then you might want to weigh up all of these other things that we've been discussing. So it's not just... Um, obviously effects on climate change, but also when you have higher air pollution, that's also going to cost governments more money in terms of providing acute health services and and other things. So it could be that actually there are good reasons to raise money through electric vehicle taxes or to not raise money through electric vehicle taxes, but it's not necessarily a question of fairness in the way that it would be if you were looking at these two taxes that were paying for the exact same thing and one was more likely to be incurred by poorer people. So would it then be more akin to, say, the excise on cigarettes Mm. or something like that, which is, I guess, partly a disincentive, partly just a handy way of raising revenue, partly predicated on the argument that if you smoke, you're likely to end up costing the health system more, and so it's only appropriate you make a taxation contribution to it. Do we end up in that sort of world of discussion? I mean, I think that that's... That's the strongest moral justification for having a petrol excise, is that uh, the reason why people who drive fossil fuel emitting cars pay more in tax, morally justified reason, would be for all of those reasons, right? That it's actually much better to disincentivize uh, behaviour that's going to harm yourself and others, and also to make up for the kinds of costs to government that uh, enacting those behaviours would generate. And I mean, I know what you're going to say in terms of equity, that obviously the problem with taxes like this that we often call sin taxes, the kinds of taxes that want to disincentivise bad behaviour or harmful behaviour, they almost always disproportionately hit the poorest people. Mm. And we see this with cigarette tax, both because uh, the amount that you pay in cigarette tax doesn't vary uh, on the basis of how much you're earning, but also because poorer people are disproportionately more likely to smoke. And If you really think that one of the main values of these taxes is to make everybody better off by changing their behaviour, then you have to kind of follow through in good faith. So if we look at New Zealand, they've recently announced that they're going to scrap their kind of world-leading essential smoking ban because cigarettes bring in a high rate of tax. Wow. You might think, look, maybe we are justified in having high rates of tax on things like cigarettes because it's not just that poorer people disproportionately smoke, they're disproportionately harmed by smoking. Mm. So they're actually, in terms of the benefit that's done by encouraging people not to smoke, poorer people are those people who are going to benefit most from that change in behaviour. But the idea that what you're actually trying to do is just generate extra money that suggests that you're not actually putting this tax in for the right reason. You're just having a regressive tax in, in the case of New Zealand. This, this brings us back, I think, to the question of resentment, though, kind of surprisingly. Because unlike all of the other forms of behavior that the two of you have just discussed, you would have to say that driving a fossil fuel-powered vehicle, even though it is objectively harmful to the environment even though the world would most certainly be better with a dramatic, if not total, elimination of fossil fuel-powered vehicles. The lived experience of people is that this is the essential means, this is the mediator between my life and my livelihood. This is the means by which I'm able to engage in forms of social life and sociability work. This is the way that I provide for my children. And as soon as that then becomes something that is treated in a similar manner as other forms of either disadvantageous or harmful behaviors that disproportionately affect the poor, that then becomes, it seems to me, a seedbed for either resentment 
or that kind of that kind of countervailing disdain for those who just sort of ventriloquizing here look at the way that i live and look at me with disdain when all i'm trying to do is to give a reasonable life to my family so that's where i i guess i i worry about the lived experience of disincentives when those disincentives are aimed at behavior that doesn't seem to be, by those who perform them, objectively bad, but rather seems to be not even a kind of a, a tragic necessity, but simply a necessity of life. I mean, I agree. I worry that part of the problem with talking about fairness is it's that kind of language that actually builds up this resentment. Mm, so it's not just poorer people who are you know, less in a position to shift to less harmful behaviour or who don't have other choices. But, you know, they're also the ones who are most harmed by air pollution. They're most harmed by uh, the effects of climate change. So when we think about extreme heat, richer people are more likely to live in better insulated homes that they're able to cool. Poorer people around the world we see that poorer countries are already facing the catastrophic burden of extreme weather events and rising sea levels. Uh, You know, you're more likely to live in a bushfire-prone zone uh, if you're less likely to afford expensive houses in affluent urban areas. Even road accidents are higher in low-income areas and poorer drivers, particularly poorer young drivers, are significantly more likely to be in crashes. So all of these are different ways in which poor people or poorer people are going to be affected whether they drive Mm. or whether or not, you know, other people are driving uh, fossil fuel powered cars or driving cars more. And that's not just in this area as well. It's not just something in the kind of climate change urgency space. So we see this in trying to increase productivity. So the Luddites who famously smashed up new textile machines because they worked in textile factories who were going to lose their jobs when this kind of new, highly productive, significantly cheaper machines came in and did what they were doing previously by hand. You know, we think of Luddites as you know people who are resistant to technological change. They were just behind the times. One of the reasons for that is that this new machinery was justified because it made clothing and textiles much, much cheaper. So poorer people who had less access to the kinds of things that were being produced uh, in textile factories suddenly increased their access. But it happened at the expense of other poorer people who were in these particular jobs. So the resentment isn't just people in lower socioeconomic groups or more marginalised groups against the people who have the power and the money, but they're actually being pitted against each other. Because when you think about fairness, it's not just one group of people who's being affected. And I mean, you can think about the same with road users, right? That uh, people who don't drive, children, future generations, they're also all affected by road use. But they often don't get considered when we're weighing up these kind of battles of fairness. So I'd suggest that actually thinking about compassion and pragmatism, how do we get out of these situations where people are pitted against each other? Why are we in a situation where there's such poverty or disadvantage that people don't have the choices that we actually want them to be making. I think that's the only way in which we're going to overcome some of these issues, particularly as we're reaching the crisis state um, in kind of politics and the environment at the moment. I wonder whether or not we might be at risk of overstating some of the resentment stuff through experience. So most people listening to this, if they drive a car, will drive a car that uses petrol, fossil fuels, they'll be paying a tax on that. I would hazard a guess that very few of them think of themselves as paying tax when they fill up their car. They will occasionally complain about the cost of petrol, but they're more likely to blame, I don't know, collusion amongst petrol stations or the oil cartels or or something like that than they are to blame excise. We had that period where excise was halved by the Morrison government and then it lapsed and the the current Albanese government allowed that to lapse. It was during a cost of living crisis that they allowed that to happen. It was probably, what, a bit more than a year ago that that happened now. There weren't people in the streets about that. I didn't even really detect a huge amount of anger about the fact they had let the, the halving of the excise lapse. So 
I just wonder, I open this to both of you, when you put it on the on a piece of paper in front of you and say you're paying this tax and they're being exempted from paying that tax because they're wealthy enough to afford an electric vehicle or whatever, if I put it to you like that, you might go, oh, that's, that makes me angry. But actually, if it just happened, because you don't think of yourself as paying tax, I wonder whether the resentment would would be there, actually. I wonder if we're talking it into existence. Mm. I mean, I don't just think it's that you're... I mean, there's something interesting about this case where it's not the case that we're imposing a new tax on people who use petrol, right? No. That tax is already there. Yeah. We're just saying... It doesn't apply to another group of people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so often these kinds of equity arguments or the fairness arguments feel more motivational when you are being put at an actual disadvantage. And it might be that later on, for reasons to do with you know road charges and things, that people who are using petrol have to pay more, um, though probably they would have anyway, right, because of you know all the other things that we've we've spoken about with kind of carbon emissions and things. But there's something funny about the case where what you're upset about isn't what's being imposed on you, but what's not being imposed on somebody else. Mm. That your anger is that somebody who wasn't being charged for something, you know, should be charged more for their particular action. Is that an envy argument or is it something else? Well, so it's sometimes described as the kind of levelling down argument for equality. So... Often when we talk about equality, what we want is for the people who have the least to get more so that they get brought up to the same level as everybody else. This is everyone must suffer like me. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Let's just bring down the people who are doing better than everybody else. And I don't think that's exactly what's going on in this case. But it feels a little bit like that, that we're angry at other people for having something that we don't have. But it's a new thing that's been introduced. And, you know, there are lots of people who think levelling down is fine. Um, levelling down can be really important with certain kinds of rights, so uh, not just with kind of distribution of money, but distribution of political power, right? If there are a mm. few people who have significantly more pe- political power than everybody else, then the only way to achieve real, you know, democratic equity is to take some of that power away from those individuals. So where the thing in play is a zero-sum thing, mm, exactly. it makes sense. But not all things are zero-sum. No, no. And in this case, you know, distribution of income in terms of, you know, taking tax revenue and things, I mean, that's got to be part of the way that we think about it. And that, I think, speaks to your point, Scott, about resentment. You know, is it really that, you know, with these taxes, what we're thinking is we kind of want to punish people? I mean, the cigarette tax, I would have assumed what we were trying to do was help people. Mm. But in the New Zealand case if they don't actually want to reduce cigarette usage, then it actually feels like this is just a punitive tax. We're going to allow you to continue to do this. We're not actually going to try to disincentivize you that much, but you're going to be punished for doing it. We feel like we're right in taking extra money from you. And there's something a little bit worrying about a public tax system that's based around punishment as opposed to trying to achieve kind of the best outcomes overall, I think. Mm. I don't often do this. Please, both of you, forgive me for doing it on the issue of leveling down, which I think is actually really, really important here. Um, Or the sense that it would be better for there to be kind of leveling down than for there to be that kind of disproportion. Um, My mad philosophical Slovenian friend, Slavoj Žižek, once told me a joke that I just, I don't know why, I can never remember jokes. I can always remember this one. Uh, A farmer is tilling his field and he, as one is wont to do, comes across a lamp in the soil and he picks it up and as you do to a lamp, he polishes it and out comes a genie. A genie says to the farmer, I'll grant you anything you wish, but be mindful. Whatever I give to you, I'll give twice as much to your neighbor. And the farmer thought for a moment and he said, genie, I have my answer. Make me blind in one eye. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. There is something there. It's a kind of perverse motivation. Can I turn this on its head ever so slightly though? Look, Walid, I, I take your point. Maybe resentment isn't an issue. Maybe, or maybe we're making it a bigger issue than it is. It's Can some- I say what I mean by that is it is on several things. Yes. And I would say it has been in a lot of our climate discussion. I'm not sure it is on this particular case. And you may well be right. And I'm really happy to accept that. 
It is nonetheless something that I'll confess on a whole number of fronts, political, democratic, ethical, it worries me very, very deeply. John Stuart Mill famously said, you know, a corrupt and internally corrupting society is one in which citizens look at one another with mutual suspicion, um, not really sure if they're safe from the predations of the other. So it is something that I suppose I'm, I'm particularly sensitive to here. I wonder, Cressida, is part of the problem here the decision on the part of some drivers of electric vehicles to take the Victorian government to the high court in order to get out of paying a tax or paying at road use charge, which purportedly was designed to, and whether it does or not, whether the proper percentage <laughs> of it does or not, but that it's purported to contribute to the maintenance of certain common utilities. Is the issue that people who can afford to pay a little bit extra are wanting to get out of paying a little bit extra, wanting to exempt themselves from this road use charge? And if that itself doesn't run the risk of that would be right, those who earn a little bit more are trying to pay less tax as they already do with other things, so the story goes. In other words, would there be a kind of case here? There's not a legal case for it. There may be an ethical. I think there would certainly be a democratic case for those who maybe would not have to pay something extra for the use of the roads to be prepared to pay a little something extra for the roads in order to facilitate not just the reality of the broader take-up, of the use of environmentally sustainable vehicles, but also that would help contribute to the sentiment, the democratic sentiment that would allow that take-up to take place without resentment, without concern for that mutual disdain or suspicion. I mean, I think if you look at the arguments that they're making, the EV users who kind of fought this in court were saying, we're very happy to mm. pay tax. We do feel like it's appropriate to tax road users. We just don't feel like it's appropriate to tax, you know, these particular kind of road users in a new way because of the effects that it's going to have on picking up electric vehicles. And, you know, when you think about it, if electric vehicles are made more expensive, you know, relative to you know, what they are because there are higher taxes on them or, you know, road users taxes, then that is also much less likely to make it the case that they're going to be equitably distributed in the population because mm. more people are going to be less likely to be able to afford them. So, I mean, I, I understand that there's a way in which you can paint these people as, you know, wealthier people who want to pay less tax. It'd be interesting to see what the EV use rate was as distributed across both, you know, other socioeconomic groups. Um, so I know that Teslas are bought by, uh, you know, particularly wealthy people. Um, they're kind of expensive, showy cars. But I think a lot of EV owners are people who aren't in, you know, the top 1%. They're kind of often in the middle demographic, mm, right. you know, socioeconomic groups. And I suspect, though it'd be interesting to see whether this is true, that EV owners, uh, you know, the kind of average EV owner, might also be very keen for there to be increased taxes on wealthier people, including them, mm. income taxes. So I think it's not necessarily a resistance to paying their fair share. It's just a concern about the way in which that's being generated. So if you did an intersectional analysis of EV owners and what they think of stage three tax cuts... You you might get a result against stage three tax cuts. Yeah, is what yeah. we're saying. Yeah, because because one of the things that's worth remembering is while electric vehicles are more expensive than their petrol counterparts, it's not as though the cheapest electric vehicle is more expensive than the most expensive well, that's right. petrol car. Yeah, you're not automatically wealthy if you. But that then raises the question, which I think might be playing more in Scott's area, which is it then really matters how we talk about these things. Mm -hmm. So if we, if we allow ourselves to turn electric vehicles into a thing that is ipso facto elite, then you invite a certain response to it that becomes immediately poisonous and, and very hard to get out of. Because once the idea of elitism takes hold in something, especially in this age, uh, it's, it's just about 
impossible for it to succeed, isn't it? Or even to be discussed in a way, it becomes so emotionally charged, it becomes so invested in things like identity, things like justice, these sorts of things that become, I don't know, almost invincible. Mm. And I think, like, electric vehicles are really, really interesting in this particular case. If you look at the United States, like Tesla, right? So EVs before Teslas were considered to be absolute crap by, you know, car enthusiasts, motor enthusiasts, people who wanted to drive fast and rev their motors. And it was Teslas that really changed the attitude amongst a section of the population who may actually not care that much about emissions, but they cared about gadgets and fast cars and fancy looking cars. And even though, you know, Elon Musk has uh, revealed himself to be not the kind of left-wing champion that <laughs> one might expect from somebody who uh, sells uh, you know, electric vehicles, in some ways that's actually helped with uptake in groups that would otherwise mm. not have even considered it. Yeah. But then in the United States, if you also look at the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, so the Biden government, the Biden administration, has brought in this act that's trying to uh, essentially decrease carbon emissions. And one of the big areas of this act is massively increasing incentives for the manufacture of electric vehicles in the United States. Now, it's had a bit of pushback because the uh, proportion of people actually buying electric cars in the United States hasn't gone up by a lot. But the number of cars in the United States that are being manufactured, electric vehicles, has gone up and the infrastructure is building up. And one of the reasons why the incentives were kind of structured like this to increase manufacturing as opposed to uh, immediately increase buying was because most of that manufacturing is done in typically red states. It's done in Mm. areas where there is a lot of poverty, uh, there's much more of a manufacturing culture, there's much more of a, you know, kind of just transition lens if you want to see it unskeptically or, you know, a bit of political movement uh, can happen there if you want to be a little bit more cynical. But in a way, that's bringing the people along with you. Mm. And it's trying to take away the idea that this is a special thing just for special people who think that they're better than you. Because that's the other bit of this kind of elitism concern. It's sneering. Yeah. It's the sneering dimension. Well, we do not want people to say that we're not good. I think everybody thinks of themselves as being morally good. Mm. If you ask somebody, you know, you, you describe a scenario like the trolley problems or something, you don't say, what would the morally good person do? You say, what would you do in this scenario? And people think about what they would do. And then they use that as the basis for working out what the morally best thing to do is. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We're terrible at actually kind of reflecting on our own behaviour. And we see it as a real insult to be told that we're not morally good. Like, you know, historically, you know, you go to the doctor and the doctor says you're fat or something, and you see that as a terrible insult, mm. even if it's just a kind of description of it's things related fact. to. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so I think that, that that's something we really need to be aware of in these cases. But changing that might not just be about changing the language, but actually thinking about ways in which we can bring other people along. And it's not just about the cost of these vehicles. It's about you know, who champions them, who presents them, where they're made, what are the kinds of connections people might have to them. Mm. Cressida, it's been fabulous to speak to you. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. I'd love to keep going. Alas, we cannot. Uh, Cressida Gaukrodja is philosopher, policy advisor and children's book author. We didn't get to that bit. We should have devoted 15 minutes to that, Scott. We should have sequestered it. Alas, we didn't. Uh, we are at the end of this week's Minefield. We'll see you next week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.